Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Getting started. Chapter 10. A good place to start. So we talked last week about kindness. Spent a good, good bit of time on kindness. And look where we start again in chapter 10. Verse 2. More kindness. Now, David wants to show kindness to the bereaved family of his ally. That's pretty good, right? I mean, not even a guy from Israel, but a neighboring country, but that guy you know, showed, showed me kindness, therefore I will extend kindness back to this family in, in their, their time of grief. Now, David sends a delegation to represent him and the, the nation of Israel. But the leaders of this other country suspect that David is, is actually trying to spy on them. You can see how that could happen. I mean, it's you know, under the guise of, you know, they, you know well, we want to come, come and ex express our sympathy, but really we want to come and check out your military and do all kinds of other things. And so the, the, the leaders of this other country decide, well, that's not good. So they decide to not kill David's emissaries, but instead to humiliate them. And then, of course, send them back to David. So, imagine the scene. You're sitting there on your throne. You got your you got your crown on. You're just sitting there, just waiting for something to happen. And these ten guys come back, naked, <laughs> haircut, you know, and just you know, beard cut in half, you know, whole nine yards. They're totally humiliated. So, David, king of Israel, what do you do? What would you do? Would you say, ah, it's not that big of a deal, it's okay? I mean, they, they use that as a means of humiliating the entire nation of Israel, which represents God. David, can't let this go. You wouldn't either. So what I'm saying is I'm not suggesting that David did wrong here. I mean, we got to get back at these guys, right? Now, the degree to which you, you get back, that's certainly up for question. But David can't let it go, so a battle plan is devised. Now, this, these Amorites are the nation just on the other side of the Jordan River. So Jordan River goes down the, the eastern border of, of Israel. Right? That's the, between the, the, the two seas and everything right there. You know, that's, that's the river going down. So all you got to do is cross the Jordan River and you're in. Now, the Amorites are those guys. The Armenians, then, are the nation directly north of the Amorites. So they're here, and the, the, the Armenians are directly above them. But those two are in cahoots. So you take on one, you're going to take on both. So essentially, because of this one act, David has to lead Israel in a battle against their entire border. So it's not like I say. You, you fight one nation, you're going to fight the other. So we got to take them all on at the same time. This it's a big deal. So in verses nine to twelve, it describes as as David's general Joab engages in battle. The enemy outmaneuvers him, so that now the Israelites are caught in the middle and have to fight on two fronts. So these two nations now 
surround them, basically, and start pressing in. It's very difficult to fight on two fronts. Because <laughs> if you focus all your attention going one way, the other side just walk right in and kill you from the rear. If you split your forces, you're not strong enough to fight either, either battle. It's, it's a no-win situation. It's the worst thing that can happen in, 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 in warfare. So the, <coughs> they, they, they get split, and <coughs> yet Joab is, is convincing them that God will do as God sees fit to do. That's his wisdom. So basically, Joab is calling for a healthy balance of faith and effort. Trust God, soldiers, but don't stand here with your sword at your side. <laughs> Wield your sword, take as many out as you can, you use your strength to, to defeat the enemy, and let God do the rest. So it's not an either war, it's a both and. Which sounds like a pretty good way to live to me, right? Uh, that's where we get the... Uh, picking yourself up by your own bootstraps, you're familiar with that phrase, is not a biblical term, but it's biblically based. You know, I think from passages like this and many others, that you know, God, God is willing to do a lot, but it still expects us to do something. So Job's advice is, let's go into battle, let's do the best that we can, and God's going to work it all out. We're, we're just going to trust God to, to take care of things. And sure enough, as soon, as soon as the Israelites start wielding their swords, the Armenians get scared and leave. They run away. Cool. Now we're down to one battle. We can handle one. So it was actually, you know, it worked out perfectly. The Israelites get a victory, but the Israelites also suffer a significant loss. So they've got to return to Jerusalem and regroup. Yeah, they can't continue in battle. They can't, can't do anything. They're really decimated at that point. But now, re rebuilt, they go back for a second battle. The second battle now, David leads the troops against the Armenians, who fled the last battle, and we got to clean these guys up. So we can't lead them, just let them run back to their, their own country. We've got to rout them. We've got to wipe them out. So David says, all right, I will lead the army to go wipe these guys out. And they, they win a very decisive victory there. But to be able to control the entire region, David now only needs to defeat the Amorites, the guys right across the Jordan. But unfortunately, that's not going to happen until chapter 12, because at the time when David needs to focus on the enemy and destroy them once and for all, he instead allows himself to be, dun, 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 distracted by Bathsheba. And this is a major, major demarcation in history. I mean, you know, David, the man of God, man after God's own heart, you know, has a, a major sin that disrupts everything, certainly distracts the king from what his, his main mission is, and results in a long number of years of disaster after disaster after disaster. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in the time to come. The bottom line is, David's effectiveness as king is significantly diminished after this affair with, with Bathsheba. Now, go back to verse 2. Verse 2, you see the word sent? Send, sent, you know, there's a, a sending out. In chapters 10, 11, and 12, the verb sent or send will appear 23 times. 
Everybody's sending something. So watch all the occasions of this. I mean, David sends messengers to Bathsheba. Bathsheba sends messengers back. God sends Nathan. You know, just everybody's sending everybody to do something. It's, it's, it's turning into a soap opera here. Now, 23 times in, in those passages, I mean, that's, that's more than the, the, than the words a, and, and the. <laughs> so my point is, that's going to become the focus, is the sending. Who's doing the sending and what is the purpose? And we're going to discover that a good bit of the time, it's not for a good purpose. And David is behind the vast majority of them. But that's the story of chapter 10. Do you have any thoughts, questions, comments on chapter 10? Last week we watched Naked Church. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's do some more nakedness. Ay, ay, ay. Now, the chapter begins by identifying the time of year. What seems odd, doesn't it? In the spring of the year. Like, <laughs> why are you telling me that? I don't need to know that. Well, we kind of do. Because <laughs> spring we usually associate with, with love, right? And interestingly, spring is also the time when they started wars. Spring is when the, the rainy season ends in that region. You cannot go to war with muddy roads. Your tires will get bogged down. Troops can't get to where they need to be. And worse yet, you can't get supplies to the troops if they are where they're supposed to be. So you don't want to start a war and have your, 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 your supply lines cut by anything, let alone something you could control by just not getting into war before the weather gets bad. So they identified it as spring. This is, this is the time now when every, all the nations start fighting again. It was a strange time. Just really bizarre. But we need to also identify that this is now a full year after the original battle that we just read about in chapter 10. A whole year has transpired. So we're back to the spring now, and we're going to start all over again. Now, it's decided, yes, we need to go fight the Amorites, but for some reason, David does not feel it necessary to lead his troops into this battle, which is kind of interesting. He instead stays home. So one evening, the king strolls out to the palace balcony, and he looks across the way to the next building over, and all the buildings back then had flat roofs, and... That's where they also had the bathtub. So he's looking out over his kingdom, and lo and behold, what his eye would pick up is a naked woman. Hey, what are you going to do? Say no. Yes, just, just say no. You. You've never been a guy, have you? <laughs> Not that I know. Not that I know. <laughs> now, remember a couple chapters ago, it said that David has too many wives, too many girlfriends? He was already warning us. He has this, this preponderance, this, this, this weakness, this whatever. Some insatiable desire for beautiful women. And... Obviously, now it's going to get the better of him. But some, somehow, this man of God does not recognize the danger of his lack of self-control. Now, go back to the verb sent. We're going to hit that a whole bunch of times here. 
And so rather than go himself, David sends Joab to war. See, there's the verb again. Rather than go himself, he sends somebody else in his stead. Now, interestingly, even without David, they're still victorious. But the text does not indicate that David is staying home is necessarily a bad thing. There, there, as you read this, it does not give the indication that David staying home was a sin or against God's will. In fact, it very well could have been that the, the generals said, now these Amorites are a bunch of weenies, we can take them with no problem at all. Don't, uh, King, don't, don't put yourself in, in harm's way and take the risk of you getting injured or killed. Let us take care of it. We got this no problem at all. So you just stay home. That, that very well could have been the case. Uh, I, I kind of think if David had an ulterior motive, there was something of an evil design, simple design, Scripture would be pointing that out to us. So that not there is probably something very pragmatic that, that occurred. Go ahead, Jim. Do you think it was kind of an embarrassment he was putting back on the Amorites that we don't even need our king to beat you? That could be too, yeah. yeah. But obviously they, they, it was a, an easy victory and so, yeah. We don't have to have to show up here. Yeah, we'll just, we'll send our second string in. Yeah, that's... I like that. So David sends Joab into battle, and David sends a messenger to find out who this, quote, very beautiful woman is. So, I mean, a neighbor, and he doesn't even know who she is. Like, that's a little odd, too. So maybe they just moved, moved, moved into town. So David discovers that her name is Bathsheba, and she is the daughter of a prominent citizen and the wife of one of his brave soldiers currently in battle against the Amorites. So David sends, here's the verb, again, now multiple messengers to summon Bathsheba. First time, to send one. Second time, we're going to send a delegation to get her and escort her to the royal palace. That might have been you know, some strong-arm tactics, uh, trying to be assertive and make sure that she understood that, well, you really don't have a choice in this. I don't know what it is. But it just seems odd that it's multiple messengers now are sent, as opposed to one just showing up with a written invitation from the king, would you please join me for dinner tonight at the royal palace? Yeah. Send people to actually escort her back. Of course, David now knows, since he sent the first messenger, he knows that Uriah, her husband, is in battle. So he can safely invite her, however he invited her, to the royal palace knowing that her husband is not home. Now, let's take a little trip down memory lane. Harken back to the beginning of Israel having a king. Recall back then that God warned them of what this king will do. This king will take your wives, your sons and your daughters, will take your land, will take your livestock. And then when nothing is left to take, he will make you his slave. Here is fulfillment. Yeah, we certainly saw it with Saul, but now David is actually falling into that same trap and taking another man's wife. Also recall that the Israelites wanted a king like the other nations. David takes another wife. That's what the kings of the other nations would do. <laughs> so he's actually living up to the expectation. This is what, what the other nations' kings are doing. They simply take now, verse 4 might seem a little strange, but it, it, it is a necessary component of the story. 
It's telling us that Bathsheba had just gone through her monthly cycle and thus could not have been pregnant when she visited with David. That's how it works. Right? So, the Bible makes that abundantly clear. So this is not you know, Uriah from a couple weeks previous, before he left, had relations with his wife and just now she becomes pregnant. No, she could not have been pregnant until because her husband's away and now David is, is, is with her. Now, another sending. Bathsheba sends a letter to David. On the letter are two Hebrew words. Once you translate it in English, it's three. I am pregnant. There are times when those are not good words to hear. <laughs> this would be one of them. I am pregnant. So the sending continues. She sends a letter to him. David then sends a series of orders to first summon Uriah back from the battlefield in the hopes that he will go sleep with his wife. And then, obviously, she's pregnant. So, well, there it is. You know, this is your, your, your husband's child. Do that. Piece of cake. I'm off the hook. Nobody's a wiser. But for some reason, Uriah doesn't want to play ball. <laughs> he, doesn't want it. he doesn't want to do this. So David sends for orders to get Uriah out of the battle, bring him home, and hope that it will happen. Apparently he's home for two nights. Uh, the first night, uh, David has spies watching him, and he refuses to go anywhere near the house. And an honorable man, you know, why would I go and sleep in my nice bed with my beautiful wife when all my comrades are, you know, up to their knees in mud and eating terrible food in the whole nine yards? Uh, you know, I would, I would be a terrible soldier to, to do that. So I will not go in. So David thinks that, well, all right, got you for another night. Let's try this. Invite you to the royal palace. Lots of wine. There, drink. <laughs> Right? Gets him good and drunk, figuring, well, then he'll just stumble home, crawl into bed with his wife, and maybe something will happen then. Nope. Sleeps outside on a mat. <laughs> right? Again, refusing to go into the house. Now David has apparently can't figure out what to do. He writes a letter to Joab. Put Uriah on the front line so that he will be killed. That's what the letter says. <laughs> I mean, there's no, no, no question on Joab's part. I mean, what's, what's the king really saying? I mean, this is what he's saying, right? You know, put him on the front line so he is killed. Seals up the letter, hands the letter to Uriah <laughs> to take to Joab. <laughs> he's taking his own execution notice to, to Joab. <laughs> David has fallen off the wagon here. I'm telling you, this is, this is not good. So again, ascending. David sends the note with Uriah. I mean, verse 6 has the word send three times. Right there. I mean, it's just sending, sending, sending. In verse 7, David pretends to be concerned about the war and inquires of how Uriah, uh, of Uriah how things are going. So you know, they, they have these conversations, but the important part is Uriah is identified as a Hittite. In other words, non-Jew. How could it be fighting for the Jews? He converted. You don't hear that every day. 
Because again, you got to go to Jew school, you got to get circumcised, you got to do all this stuff. But Uriah says, that's what I want to do. He's one of the, the few that have ever done that. But so, so, so much a man of character that you know, people in Israel realize well, this guy's a real asset, and so they elevate him in the, in the military and everything. So he becomes you know, an important person in, in, in the Jewish military. So the, the bottom line is that we have a, a foreigner acting more righteously than the king. I mean, that's real irony, especially this king that we have known so far as a man above reproach. So Uriah, drunk, is still more, more noble and honorable than the sober king. <laughs> How's that for a comparison? So David sends Uriah to the front line, and you never know it, he was killed. Unbelievable. But there's even more irony. Recall back when Saul died, uh, when uh, Abner died, you know, sworn enemies. When they died, David mourns and cries and big laments and you know public appearances and just you know he's he's on CNN and in Fox News and everything else and you know oh I miss these guys so much and you know all this. Uriah dies nothing. <laughs> they get you know he gets nothing. There's no no remorse no nothing. So I mean not even a show at this point not even feigning anything. Uh, it's really really bad. Bathsheba obviously is, is upset, but we discover in the last verse of this chapter, God is displeased. Dun, dun, dun. God is displeased. And we're going to see this act out now in the next chapter. Um, but that, that is the, that's the, the pivotal verse, the end of, of, of chapter 11. This is when everything starts tipping the other way. So David's life, I mean, wait till we see what's coming up. I mean, kids and incest and everything else. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, you know, another son tries to kill him. It's, it's going to get bad fast. But we need to talk about the reason why that's, that's happening. But we've got to go back to finish up chapter 11. David has lived a seemingly charmed life until now. Everything has gone his way. But right now, the problems will start. And most of the problems arise from his own family. That's an added pain. Verse 27, the child is born. See how fast time has passed here? I mean, we're, just, we're clicking things up. We just passed a year between chapters, and now we've covered, covered another nine months very, very quickly. Um, The child dies. Now, David has chosen to sin, and sin always brings about a negative consequence. Now, we've already discussed and are assured that when we choose to do what God declares is right, we're blessed. That's how it was back then, Gary. Is it that way today? Yes, it is. It is. Okay. So, it should not surprise us then that if we choose to sin, to reject God that that will result in God withholding, withdrawing, blessing from us. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a curse upon us, just a withdrawal of the blessing. 
Previously you were blessed, not anymore. That's, I guess, a curse, but you know, more times than not, what happens is a simple withdrawing of, of the blessing. We saw that with Saul. God didn't have to do a thing to Saul. Saul just kept piling it on himself because of the decisions he was making. And God says, well, I'm not going to reward you for that. I'm going to withhold the blessing. So it finally got to the point that, well, you ain't getting nothing from me ever again. A son is born, but God is displeased. And that's how we end chapter 11, before all the fun of chapter 12. Thoughts on chapter 11? Quiet group tonight. Chapter 12 will get you going, I guarantee it. <laughs> Strap yourselves in. Nathan shows up. Now, this is the second time Nathan shows up. Did you notice that there's absolutely no fanfare with this? There's no, no introduction that Nathan, son of X, Y, and Z, and A, B, and C. You know, and we usually get that, don't we? With first of everybody. We identify who they are, you know, what their family is, what nation, you know, what, what, what tribe they're from. What, you know, just, we, we get all that. Nathan, nothing. He just shows up. Which, again, when you expect to find something and you don't get it, you should ask yourself, Why? How's this for a plausible explanation? Nathan was so awesome, he didn't need no introduction. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter who his parents are. I mean, he comes with the full authority of God, and that is all that is necessary. That seems to be what the Bible is telling us. He's not mentioned anywhere else? Nope. This is the first time? Yeah, right. Yep. Yep. Just comes out of the blue. Yep. Just a, a, absolutely bizarre. Kind, kind of like Elijah then, just you know, getting hoovered up into heaven. right? So uh, it's just, you know, here they're gone. Now, when, when David appears, coming up here in the next couple of verses, we're going to find out now what true character really is. So you probably figured this out, but let me affirm it for you. The way you respond in a difficult time or a crisis, that reveals your true identity or your character. When times are good, you go for years and years and years and times are good, that's not character revealing. The real person comes out in the crisis, what we're really made of. Um, if you ever watched uh, Seinfeld, just popped into my head. Uh, there was an episode of Seinfeld where uh, George George has a girlfriend. Do you ever notice that, like every episode, they all had different different girlfriends and boyfriends and everything? You know, just they never follow them through. They just they here and gone. But George has has this girlfriend, and they they're invited to I think it was a niece's birthday party, like an eight year old girl's birthday party. So the parents are there, grandparents are there, all these little girls running around and everything. And I can't remember what the situation was, but you know, in, in that room, somebody yells, fire. Now you've got this, just tons of people. Do you remember this, Alex? <laughs> you know, there's tons of people, and George is picking little girls up and throwing them out of the way and pushing the grandmothers out of the way and everything just to save himself. <laughs> and, and then by the time he makes it to the door, somebody says, no, no, false alarm. It, was, it, was, yeah, it wasn't really a fire. It, it was, a, was a false alarm. And you know, people are laying on the floor and then they're looking at George and like, 
this is your real character, buddy. <laughs> you, know, you, you don't care about anybody but yourself. I mean, it was just, it fully, fully came alive for everybody. The girlfriend dumped him and everything. It was, it was totally unpleasant, but, ay, ay, ay. So, but that's when true character is revealed. David now is in that situation when somebody is yelling fire. What will he do? This is the most awful time of his life. Because now he realizes that he has sinned against God. So in the, in the past two chapters, David has been doing the sending. He's, he's, sent, he's, sent, he's sent messengers on multiple occasions. He sent a letter. He sent Uriah back. He sends letters to, to Joab. I mean, he's, he's sending, 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 sending. <coughs> Guess what? God says, now it's my turn. I'll do a little sending myself. God's going to step in and send his prophet. David sent, did some sending to, to be able to commit adultery. He sent to be able to commit murder. And then sent a bunch of times to try to cover up the mess that he created. But now God is going to do some sending of his own. But now you've got to ask yourself, David is king. King which means absolute power. How do you correct a king who has so much power? Genius. God gives Nathan the way to do it. Tell a parable. Tell a story. Don't go in accusing. Tell a story. And so he tells this story about you know, the little ewe lamb you know, being taken and all of that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole rich man, poor man thing, and yeah, the, the just the, the uh, why he couldn't see that what, what Nathan was doing. I don't know. It seemed pretty obvious to me. But in the, in the end, Nathan doesn't even ask David, "What what do you think, O King, should be done in this situation?" He doesn't even ask that. David just jumps right in and says, "That man should be killed." As surely as verse five, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. I am the king and I have spoken. But notice the mastery of this parable. David is a former shepherd who knows that as a shepherd you're supposed to take care of your people, your, your sheep. And the story is told about a man's flocks that were not being protected by a shepherd. So a little, little twist in there, another, another layer to it. Just absolutely awesome. So David blurts out that that man should, should be killed, should die. And Nathan, verse 7, responds, you are the man. This is a story about you, O king. Now, do you remember Jesus saying, the measure by which you judge others is the measure God will judge you? Those are pretty, pretty good words there. <laughs> right? So we shouldn't get all high and mighty and uppity you know, about somebody else. Because then Jesus follows that up by saying, well, you, you take the beam out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your neighbor's eye, right? We have a habit of doing that. And in fact, uh, psychologically, and I, I see this happen all the time, it, I, it just makes me chuckle. And you know, when you, you point the finger at somebody else for their whatever, sin or neurotic thing or whatever you're, 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 you're pointing out to them, you still have three fingers pointing back at yourself. You're actually revealing that this is, this is my worst characteristic. 
<laughs> you can, I mean, it happens all the time. It's, just, it's so funny. People can't see that in themselves. Boy, I see it in Darlene. Oh, my gosh. You know, but you still got three fingers pointing back at yourself. You still, you're the one who is actually way more guilty than the other. That's what, that's what Nathan is saying. David, you, you need to take, take a good, hard look at yourself. So again, we have evidence that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Right, Gary? That's right. There it is. All right, so God was this way thousands of years ago. Jesus confirms it a couple thousand years later. So therefore, it must still be the same for us today. Now, this, this scene with Nathan and, and, and David is truly one of the most poignant scenes and sad scenes in the entire Bible. As, as you're reading chapter 12 and seeing this dialogue between Nathan and David and all that, I, I suspect it touched you, maybe drew you to come to conclusions or ask a question. What do you think? Do you want to say anything at this point? What's what's happening here in this this exchange between Nathan and David? What's what would you like to say? Well, let me get the ball rolling. What what does this say about sin? David did a big one here. <laughs> Actually, a, a twofer. <laughs> Adultery and murder. I mean, come on. Those are top ten commandment type stuff, right? Can't hide from it. Okay, so sin cannot be hidden. And in fact, uh, Paul, Paul Paul says it in, in, in the New Testament, you know, if you think you're putting it in the dark, you know, God, God's going to put a big spotlight on it. <laughs> he's going he's, he's, he's gonna, to gonna reveal it. So uh, it was really... <laughs> A, a compounded sin on David's part to think that I can do this and hide this from God. I mean, that was a major blunder on his part. Okay, what else does this say about sin? I think it skips ahead a little bit of what I was reading, but uh, I think it also shows that God is a God of justice. He's a God of righteousness. He won't let it go unchecked either. I mean, right. he, he will address it. You know, whereas, whereas David might have thought initially they got away. Not, not necessarily they got away with, but at the end, it is something that will be checked. It will be taken care of. Okay, as as part of the the judgment, as we see here, is is it all all bad news for David, like it was for Saul? No, it shows that he still has a heart, has love for. It. I mean, because he doesn't, because it says that David won't die. So it doesn't show that God's wrath is smiting David. He's saying it shows it still shows the love that God has for David, but he he still says it that basically at that point. I can't let this go unpunished. I still love you, but it's almost like a father to a child situation. Okay, I'm 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 trying to get you to say the the, the Christian F word. Forgiveness. Thank you. <laughs> yes. So that that you know, see what I did there? The, say it with me, Karen. It's, uh, we're, we're we're losing Karen immediately. Uh, <laughs> make sure you tell them to Peggy. <laughs> no, make make sure she listens to it. Uh, but yeah, so integral to that process, then it, it's yeah, because judgment and forgiveness are almost opposing forces. But what what I hear you saying is God God is the balance of those two. It's not just one. Is if if I if I judge, I'm going to wipe you all out right now. 
if I if I only forgive, then there. Right, exactly. We, we, we do anything we want. There is no no consequence. No 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 nothing. We would be like you know, a bunch of three year olds with, with with car keys. Right. We're just going to go go run all over the place. So you know. So either of the extremes is not good. But what what we see God doing is what you're saying it, it is the balance between those two extremes, and both are necessary. It can't be one or the other. It it it, it has to be both. What what else does it say about sin? All right, let's make it personal. What does this say about your sin? Good. Affects other people. Okay, so there, there, there's a definite ripple effect. Uh, nothing, nothing is done in isolation. Uh, are you familiar with the uh, scientific concept of the the butterfly effect? It's an actual thing. They say that you know a, a butterfly here in Pennsylvania, when he flaps his wings, has an impact in China. It just—I mean—just because everything is so symbiotic in in creation that it, you know, one thing affects the other, affects the other, affects the other, and you, you really can't see it. But you know, uh, we we know that when a volcano explodes, um, that stuff gets up in the atmosphere. And uh, what was that big volcano? Uh, yeah, that was one of them. But there was one more recently that uh, over over in Asia somewhere that went up, and uh, about a month later, it's it's affecting our weather here here in America. It just gets up there, and so yeah, so I mean, just the the whole natural order of things is is you know relational. So not, uh, nothing is done in isolation, I guess, or as, as Karen say, it, it's not done in secret. Uh, it it does have an impact on. A whole bunch of other stuff, and I guess depending on the severity of the sin, depends on the amount of effect it will have. Because obviously, there uh, sin is sin, but there are some bigger sins than others. Just simple statement of fact. Um, so, because some sins have a bigger impact, a more universal effect, uh, more 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 pain, more more agony, more of all the bad stuff. Yeah. What else does it say about, you know, our sin? When not checked, one sin kind of leads to more sins. See, see how that went? I mean, this is a real domino effect here. You know, one leads to another. Now I got to hide it. Now I got to kill somebody. Now I got to do this. Now I got to do that. And yeah, and you are the man. Rats! Yeah. <laughs> I went through all that. I didn't. I didn't have to. <laughs> if I'd have just known this was going to be done, I would have just, you know, I would have left that poor Uriah alone because he was a really good guy. A good drinking buddy. It's, it's, we, we we had fun hanging out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anything else you want to say about sin? We can talk all night. Good. For for each sin, there will be a there will be a consequence. Yep. There's always the consequence. Whether it be light or heavy or something's going to happen, and that's what's coming up next. Verse 9. Verse 9 identifies the specific sin that David committed. And it doesn't mention adultery nor murder. The sin is that David despised the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes. That's more of a generic term, but in so doing... That encompasses adultery and murder 
and trying to hide it and do all the rest, right? Trying, you know, yeah. So the, the hiding part is, is lying to God. So he's guilty of that. You know, he breaks just about every Ten Commandment he can find. So it's it just, again, the compounding effect. But you know, verse 9 is, is very important because it, it, it identifies it. So despising the word of the Lord, which David knew. See, that's the problem. You know the word, now you despise it to the point that you reject it, you disobey it, which then will lead you to do what is evil in God's eyes. Essentially saying this is the exact opposite of righteousness. Those are your two options. You're going to live rightly, or you're going to live sinfully. You're going to live you know, despising God's word. Part of that word, I think I can remember somewhere, God talking about he doesn't like adultery and he doesn't like murder. I'm just, somewhere in the back of my mind, I think I remember that from somewhere, right? So, but over and above that in verse 9, from the heart of God, God is saying, David, I've given you everything. But even if you thought I did give you everything, if you had asked, I would have given you more. And this is how you pay me back? Again, the relationship. And again, it's not just judgment, but it's not just forgiveness either. God does not turn a blind eye to this. Verse 10, God decrees that because David took it upon himself to use the sword of the Amorites to kill Uriah. Remember, that was the setup. I won't have any of our people murder him. I will put him in battle so that the Amorites will naturally kill him. So since he used the sword to kill Uriah, God says the sword will remain with David for the rest of your life. The sword will be in your household. And one of his sons does come after him with the sword. <laughs> Get ready, it's coming. So God is basically declaring that David has begun a series of calamities that will continue for the rest of his life. So we have to be careful to use the word punishment here. Because punishment makes it sound like God is singling David out to do these things to him. Like I'm killing that baby and I'm going to make your son try to kill you and I'm going to you know, make, make your other kids you know, commit incest and I'm going to make them do that. See, that's, that's beyond what God does. So we need to be very, when we use the word punishment, punishment is in the, in the sense of I have allowed you to do these things to set this wheel in motion and I won't stop it. That's the punishment. But the punishment is not God arbitrarily picking persons to inflict whatever upon on a random basis. So what God is saying is, David, you have chosen violence. You brought violence into your home and to make this now part of this relationship with this woman Bathsheba. And so God is going to be able to use that violence then to make a point that the people in your home now will base their lives on violence. You have brought that in. I'm not making it happen, but I allowed you to bring it in. And that's, that's the punishment. Now, verse 13, as mad as God is, he nonetheless reassures David that he will not die as a result of his sin. But that's kind of what he did with Saul also. He's really mad at Saul and said, that's it, about Saul, Saul lived for another 40 years. <laughs> right? So 
Well, the, the immediacy of it, again, is, is not the issue. Time is not, not really big on God's, God's plan. He's got lots of time. So he's, he, he allows us, allows David to have time to try to correct it, to get, to get things back on track where they need to be. And that's what he's offering to David. So I'm not going to kill you now. I'm going to give you an opportunity. But just like Saul, keep making bad decisions. I'm going to be out. Might still live for a while longer, but you get no, no more blessing. So David admits his sin. You are the man. And it hits, hits David like a ton of bricks. Okay, the jig's up. I, I now realize that I, I can't fool God. I, I, I can't hide this from, from God anymore. But now, again, in the comparison with Saul and David, Saul also admitted his sin on numerous occasions. But that was only after Saul tried to deflect his sin or tried to argue with God. <laughs> and then trapped, all right, I sinned. You know, like, did you ever do that with your kids? Yeah, tell your sister you're sorry. I'm sorry. You know, that's not real heartfelt, right? Yeah, that was Saul. Saul. Saul is a spoiled four-year-old that's not getting his own way, right? David is much more mature, and what he's doing is a genuine repentance. Yeah, the heartfelt experience. David humbly admits that he sinned. I mean, look what he says in verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. He would say, I sinned against Uriah. <laughs> right? But no, I mean, ultimately, I knew I shouldn't have done this, and my ultimate sin is that against God. I have sinned against the Lord also is only two words in Hebrew. See the economy of words there? I mean, it's just... So, when, when, when you're... When you're confessing sin, when you're, you're, you're repenting, I, there's plenty of stories in the Bible that seem to indicate that you're, you're best to exercise your Miranda rights. Uh, you know, keep it short, sweet, and to the point, because everything you say can and will be used against you. So you know, just, just so, here, lay it out, two words. I have sinned against the Lord. The end. What more could you say? Anything more you say is, is going to water down what you just said. It's going to make it less effective. Let those words stand on their own. So David is way different than Saul. He doesn't try to dodge the sin. He doesn't try to blame anybody else for the sin. I have sinned against the Lord. Now that much said, the depth of David's character is even greater. Because as king, I cannot stress this enough, he doesn't have to admit he's wrong to anybody. <laughs> Sometimes it's good to be the king. Right? I mean, he's not accountable to anybody. Literally. But David is saying, again, his character and his relationship with God, I know I am still accountable to God. He's not so bold and so arrogant that he forgets that. And that's why God is still willing to work with him. David knows that God is really the king. And David is just happens to be sitting on the throne. Now, if this had happened in any other country, more than likely the king would have killed Nathan. They always kill, kill the messenger, right? I don't like what you're saying, but it happened plenty of times even in Israel. Uh, so in other nations, that, that's what always happened. Um, 
John the Baptist spoke out against King Herod? Remember what King Herod did? Off with his head, right? So that's usually what happens. If you've got a message that the guy doesn't like, King has, has the power to just make, make you stop with the message. I don't want to hear it anymore. So what we see here is true, true repentance, which is way different than what we saw in Saul. Now, David says that in verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. Notice the next sentence, what God's response is. Immediate F word. See what I did there, Brian? <laughs> Immediate forgiveness. Immediate. No hesitation. And notice it's not watered down forgiveness. It's not, well, maybe someday I'll get around to forgiving you. It is immediate. Now, that's significant because the law, the law dictated that for both adultery and murder were capital offenses. The person who commits either of those crimes, let alone both of them, is to be taken out and stoned. That's what God decreed will happen. That wasn't one we made up. That was one that God issued. So God is saying, that is my law. But again, the difference, the balance between the judgment and love, forgiveness, mercy, whatever word you want to put on the other side there, grace. So God... Since David is truly repentant, God goes 51% on the mercy side. Right? Still, still 49% judgment. <laughs> right? But if I, you know, you got, you got to pick one side. You got to go strong on one or the other. And so God chooses a little bit more mercy. But you really need to ask yourself the question. God now says, I will be merciful, but God had this law. And a law, we can't break laws. It shouldn't. Law is a law is a law, right? If you run a run run a, a, a red light, you shouldn't you shouldn't get off because you're a person of influence or whatever, or president of the United States or a senator or whatever, you, you shouldn't get off of that. You've broken a law, just like any other person. That's, that's the way it is. But God is forgiving David even though David broke the law multiple times. So God's law of judgment, but God also has a law of mercy. So the, the question is, why is God siding with the mercy? Why is he lowering the boom on David? Okay. I think it's because they have such a good relationship and uh, he, he always he's been he's been uh, so um, godly I mean David's been a godly man for many years and he's made a big mistake here big big mistakes but I think God's uh, maybe giving him some of the doubt okay let's I agree but let's 
Let's flip the coin. This just occurred to me. Let's say David had been Saul. Excuse me. And then did what he did to Bathsheba and, and Uriah. What, what would God's response have been then? Why? Okay. So having a, a history of righteousness might save your bacon <laughs> in, in, in that speed bump moment. Now, I think it's a really good point. I never never really thought of that before, but I, I, I really like that because, you know, if, if there's a consistent history of, of evil, evil, sin, 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 you know, the whole nine yards, then this is no different. You know, God says, yeah, you're, you're out, that's, that's all there is to you. You've never been in. But with David, good, 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 oops, bad. Now, now back to good, you know, it seems as though God is able to isolate that, to to look at that differently because of the heart previously exemplified. Now, this isn't to say, well, I want you to go out and test the theory for that you, you commit yourself to God for the next five years to be really, really devoted because in five years I'm going to go kill me somebody. Uh, you know, so don't, don't, don't do that, but if something does happen and you hit the speed bump, you want that history behind you because then you will be smart enough to return to it. So in fact, in, in your history, there would just be that one little blip. On either side of it are righteousness, goodness, you know, the, 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 the relationship with God. So, yeah, let's see. Go ahead, Dres. Well, we're, we'll, we'll get to that next week. And yeah, again, I, I want to be very, very careful in using the word punish. That, you know, how about for now we use the word consequence rather than punish? Punish sounds like I'm doing this to you, as opposed to a consequence is I will allow what you set in motion to happen. That's the point we'll we'll, we'll get to here by the time we we, we get down another verse or two. Uh, but we won't have time to to get to that today. Um, <laughs> you back again? I think uh, God knows both David and Saul's heart, and that's why they did. Yeah. Because they were So now in, in terms of this event or these events, these bad events, these sinful events, what does God see in David's heart? There's your R word. So we got an F word and an R word now, right? But yeah, and so we, we, we have to use that, that R word. We really do. But using the R word means that we, the, the previous step in that is I'm admitting I've sinned, right? You see? I mean, you know, repentance doesn't happen in isolation. It happens as a result of something. So repentance is critical to this process. So David's heart is that of true repentance. Saul's was, now, right, I'll do it because you're holding a gun to my head. But, you know, I don't want to. David genuinely gets it. And God says, I, I, I can work with this guy. So I ain't going to kill you. Do you think any, any other reasons why, why God would for, forgive him? You know, and and not lower the boom on him, side on the on the on the side of uh, of mercy instead of judgment. You talking about Saul and uh, David originally? I think a big thing too is the process that the kingship too. I mean, I guess the relationship the people chose Saul versus God kind of with through Samuel appointed David. So I think from the very beginning that you know it goes to the relationship, but even just how they were selected as kings too. Yeah. I mean, this was this was more 
he wasn't picked to be the godly leader of Israel. It's all one, I should say. Right. Versus, but from that point on, God basically invested into yeah. into David. No, that's that that is significant. Yeah. Michelle, what were you going to say? God has plans for David. So he's already said, "You will always, your family will always be on the throne." Yeah. So he's so, and again, you know, in the. What this whole study reveals is is you know, who God is, right? I mean, that's we're we're getting a real good sense of who God is, and so what we discover about God is God already knows the future. I mean, He actually tells it in a couple of cases. I'm, I'm going to tell you flat out: This is what's going. Saul, you're not going to be in. David, you are, right? So forever and ever and ever. So yeah, generations to come. So God already knows all of that, and so He already knows that this is truly a speed bump. That David will return. David will. Smooth it out, and he'll be he'll be back to good again. Uh, but unfortunately, it's this is a big deal, and there's a lot of ripples from this this event. This isn't you know spitting on the sidewalk or jaywalking. This is this is a biggie, right? So it it, it does come with 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 a lot of consequences. And I, I guess as an extension of that, uh, something that that came to me was. Um, You'll need to go back to uh, Exodus 34 because God identifies himself in situations like this. Now this is Exodus right after the golden calf and all that. Another big speed bump in Jewish history. Just saying. So if you look at that, God identifies himself. God says, I am slow to anger. I am abounding in love and faithfulness. I will forgive your wickedness, rebellion, and sin. If you truly repent, <laughs> right? Uh, so God, God says, I, I, "This is who I am. I will do that." In other words, I, I will forgive and forget. I will remember it no more. Now you're going to have a hard time forgetting because you're going to set into motion a whole series of junk that's going to happen to you, and you're, you're not going to like it. But with me, it's gone. That doesn't matter anymore. You ask for forgiveness, I forgive you. We're we're done with that. I forget it. It has no no bearing in our relationship. Everybody else, yeah, they they don't want to forget. <laughs> They'll keep holding it over your head. But yeah, between you and me, we're good. So that's that's kind kind of neat that, that God makes makes that really really clear in 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 this relationship how 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 He handles us. So we'll save the big verse fourteen for next week. We'll pick it up there because it is going to be fun and exciting, and I imagine will cause all kinds of controversy and discussion. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick, so I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.